0: Well, it is uh, good to be in God's house tonight. Enjoy the good songs and the singing and uh, fellowship. And we'll get into the Bible study. We're still in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 7, be taking our text from tonight. Acts chapter 7. Uh, I'm going to look at verses 44 through 60, so down through the end of it there. Um, In Acts chapter 7, and I'm not going to read all the text at the beginning. Uh, We'll read um, uh, verses 44 through 47 and then pray, and then we'll get right into it. Acts chapter 7, starting with verse 44, the Bible says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers under the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob, but Solomon built him an house. Father, thank you for the reading of your word tonight. Help us now as we try to preach. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I realize we covered those verses briefly last time a little bit, so we're not going to go over them a lot tonight. Uh, we're going to really focus more on 51 through 60 uh, in this um, in this study. But uh, we left off here last week looking at that long narrative of Stephen's sermon, his defense, and uh, he speaks about the life of Moses, and he used that to build his defense and to point these. This Sanhedrin council toward their what they're doing wrong. You see, they don't they, their eyes are not open yet. He's trying to open their eyes to see how he's comparing them with the children of Israel and how they treated uh, the the laws of Moses and how they rejected him as a leader and how all through the ages of the children of Israel and the Israelites, that's what they did. They rejected him. Not only did they reject Moses as their leader, but they also rejected Jesus Christ as their uh, Messiah and their leader. And not once, but twice <laughs> uh, with the rejection of Jesus in their current day. And so uh, we covered a little bit about why some folks have issues with verse 5, where it uses the name Jesus instead of Joshua. And we explained that in the various forms in the King James Bible. But tonight, as we look out and finish this chapter... It's going to be looking at the martyrdom of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen. Now, um, like I said, I included those verses 44 through 47 tonight just to kind of keep things into context. And so Stephen is going over about the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness and how it was started and how eventually it moved into being the temple of Solomon. But David wanted to build the temple, but we know that God would not allow him to because he said he was a bloody man. And uh, he uh, he allowed Solomon to build that temple. And, of course, God gave all the instructions on how it was to be built. And so uh, Stephen has taken them through all that. And he did that as a rebuttal against their accusations that he is um, speaking heresy and, and uh, blaspheming against the temple. That was their main charge. He's blaspheming against the temple, blaspheming against Moses and the laws of Moses. And so what he's doing, he's showing that he has great respect for that temple. He understands that that God ordained that to become what it was and how it started and everything. So he's not blaspheming against it. But look at verse 48. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? And so he's using the Old Testament scripture now to back up his claims about God not living in temples. So he's not blaspheming against the temple, but after all, guys, God doesn't live in in a house like that. Gods don't live in that house. God can live everywhere. He's everywhere. And so he even goes back and says what God said. Isaiah 66, 1 through 2 is what he's referring to. Where the prophet said, thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things has mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. So he knows they know that Old Testament scripture. And so he's pointing out, we'll see, God said that he don't live in houses. He That his uh, His throne is, uh, heaven is his throne, and the earth is Nothing but his footstool. And then he refers to what Solomon said in 1 Kings 8 and 27, where it says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built. So Solomon uh, stands back and looks at this magnificent temple that he has built, and he says, But, you know, we can't even contain God in this. I mean, he's, he's bigger than, than everything. The heaven and heaven of heavens can't contain God. And so what Stephen has said in these verses reveals what he's trying to say in the first place, that he's not blaspheming the temple, but rather that he's showing that God does not need the temple uh, uh, made with hands because his throne is actually in heaven. Uh, You cannot contain God in a man-made structure. Now, we'd love to, and we'd like to have God in a box. I've got a sermon title of God in a box. I'll preach it one of these days. But uh, God is too magnificent. He's too glorious to be confined in a temple, into some kind of house. So if the temple is destroyed, it does not harm God one single bit because he doesn't dwell there anyway. And, of course, we know, what was it, about 35 years or so later, after this took place in 70 A.D., that temple was, in fact, destroyed. The enemies come in. God allowed the enemies to come in and destroy that temple. And so all this, uh, this uh, you know, complaining that this uh, Sanhedrin council is doing is really, it's for nothing. Now, this is where things start getting um, ugly. Verse 51. He, so Stephen's finished now with his sermon. Uh, He's finished taking them back to the Old Testament and finished trying to compare them and finished trying to open their eyes. Now he's just going to just rear back and punch them. 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. (laughs) It makes you wonder what happened between verse 50 and 51, doesn't it? I mean, all of a sudden, he leaves off from talking about the temple and God not living in in the in temple to just letting them have it. And obviously, something's happened here to cause Stephen to just abruptly stop preaching and just, just going on the attack. Uh, the most probable thing that occurred was the Jews did not accept what he had to say about the temple. I'm sure there were heads wagging. They were getting angry. He could see it. He knew they were rejecting what he's talking about. And uh, so there was probably some backlash there from those on that Sanhedrin council after he made that statement, howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And I'm sure they just, you can see them now. That's why he called them stiff-necked, you know. They're they're stiff-necked. And uh, that's what he calls them first. And that word is used a lot of times, especially in the Old Testament, against those who are disobedient and those who are resistant to God. And his will. Most of the time when you see that word, the Lord is the one using it. He's calling his people stiff-necked people all the time, uh, the children of Israel, and Moses relaying God's message to him, and uh, um, once it's in a letter written by King Hezekiah in the reference to rebellious children of Israel, let me give you a few verses. Exodus 32 and 9, this is God, and the Lord said unto Moses, "I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people." Exodus 33 and 3, God again says, Unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. Exodus 33 and 5, God says, For the Lord has said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I will come up in the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thy, thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. And so all those are instances of God speaking to the children of Israel because of their rebellion. They had turned to false idols. They turned to the wickedness. And uh, God tells them, look, you bunch of stiff-necks, what you are. And Moses, he picks up the same language, Exodus 34 and 9. And he said, "'I now, I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord. Let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance.'" Of course, that's Moses pleading on behalf of these stiff necked people. And he throws himself in there. He said, We are stiff necked people, Lord, but have mercy on us. Again, Moses in Deuteronomy 9 and 6, Understand, therefore, that the, the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff necked people. In Deuteronomy 9 13, Furthermore, the Lord spake unto me, saying, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stiff necked people. And this is, this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel because of their attitude. Remember, they had to wander around in that wilderness for 40 years because of being a stiff-necked people. And so Moses is explaining that to them, that God said, this is what you were, and this is what's happening. So for Stephen to use that word in reference to these men on the Sanhedrin council court, it's a very strong thing for him to be saying to them. To be stiff-necked actually means to be stubborn, obstinate and headstrong is what it means to be. I might have been a stiff necked little boy growing up. But this term originated from men trying to break oxen is what it what it came from. The oxen's neck was so stiff and it refused to move. And so when they're trying to plow behind an oxen they were like my papa, he used he had a Clydesdale, the last one he had, he used to have mules, and then he got himself a Clydesdale and for years he drove that Clydesdale to plow our gardens and things. And that thing was stiff-necked, and uh, he had that, that bridle in its mouth, and he, and he grabbed a hold of those reins. And boy, when that, that horse didn't want to move his neck, he'd yank on that thing. Gee-haw! You could hear him yelling out all those calls. And so that's where this term comes from. The oxen had a stiff neck, and it was strong. They refused to allow the yoke to break them, and so they were unbroken. And that's what they called a, a stiff neck. And that's a, certainly a picture of the Jews. And despite the evidence before them, they refused to believe in the Messiah that was sent to save them. And so they remained stiff-necked. And so that's what Stephen's saying here. You, what he said in verse 51, ye stiff-necked. And then he uses another word, uncircumcised in heart and hardened ears. Oh, boy. Uh, if that first one didn't get them riled up, that second one is. And so he falls it up there, and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. And so we know circumcision was what uh, the Jews recognized as their bond with God. And so um, to tell somebody that they were uncircumcised meant you were calling them a heathen. It was an insult. And so that's how they insulted each other back in the Jews' days. If they wanted to insult one of them, they say, you uncircumcised Philistine or something like that, you know, um, heathens. So to be uncircumcised in heart and ears meant they refused to listen or to realize the truth. It meant they were not being obedient to God. And so now they've been called stiff-necked, uncircumcised in in uh, heart and uh And so he takes it another step further. Look at it. He says, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Now these Jews opposed the message which was brought to them by God through his Holy Spirit. And we know that that God did. He sent the message through the Holy Spirit. He sent Jesus there to, to bring the message. Jesus could have set up an earthly kingdom when he came there among his own people, but they refused him. And so the same spirit that led Moses and all the prophets of old, which the Jews resisted, is the same spirit that these Sanhedrin council is also refusing to listen. The Holy Spirit was, was an influence through John the Baptist, through Jesus, and the apostles. And they resisted all of them. And so listen, to resist the Holy Spirit is one of the worst things that you could possibly do. Resistance of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that scares me more than to know somebody that's lost and to see conviction come over them. If you've ever stood behind a pulpit and preached a, a message and saw somebody that was lost and they become, become convicted in the sermon, it is one of the most scariest thing you've ever seen in your life because you know that that moment right there. When they're grabbing that pew and those knuckles are turning white and they start looking around, some of them get up and start walking off and things like that, you know the Holy Spirit is dealing with them. They need to submit to that Holy Spirit, not, not turn him away, not be stiff necked and uncircumcised like these men right here are. These religious leaders there that Stephen's standing before had resisted the Holy Spirit. They're standing there damned in their sins. Look at verse 52. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. He knows that there's no getting out of this. He already knows that. And so he's just going to give them everything that he's got. He's not going to hold back. And he just rears back and, and lets them have it. He's called them, what all, stiff-necked, uncircumcised. Now he's called them murderers and betrayers and uh, um, not keeping the law and everything else. And this is, this is getting to them so bad. And so he brings up the fact that the Jews have a history of this, a history of rejecting and persecuting their own prophets. And that's what he's telling them they're doing. Uh, men that God sent to warn them, instead of heeding the warning, what do they do? They kill them. Kill the, kill the messenger. That's, you hear that term, don't shoot the messenger? <laughs> that's where it comes from. Uh, they, God sent a messenger? What do they do? He won't kill the messenger. And so uh, instead of turning toward the Lord and doing what God says, they turn him away and uh, turn per and imprison them. Uh, Murdered them. Jesus brings up that same fact in the Gospel of Matthew when he's speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. If you want to look at it, it's in Matthew 23. uh, Some of the most scathing things that Jesus ever said, uh, especially to these religious leaders, and that's who he always did it to. He didn't go around uh, rebuking the lost people. Uh, he He would lead them in the right direction, and he would... Uh, show the love of Christ, but when it came to these religious people that uh, should supposedly be saved, (laughs) you know, we call it saved, they wouldn't have called it that, but uh, they should know God, they should be God's people, those are the ones that he really let have because they refused to listen. They thought they knew it all, but they didn't. And so this is what Jesus said, Matthew 23 and 29, Woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, you be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill you up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall you scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias son of Barachus, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. You talk about scalding (laughs) a group of people. The Lord scalded those scribes and Pharisees. He called them hypocrites. That's a, that means a stage actor. You guys are nothing but a bunch of actors, pretenders. So these men have a long history of persecuting the prophets, and Stephen throws that fact in their face, and that is the very last final straw for Stephen. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. What a scene. What a scene. I mean, you would think this was a wild pack of dogs. This isn't the only time we read in the Bible that these guys were cut to the heart. If you remember, when we studied in chapter 5, when they'd arrested Peter and John for preaching in the temple, and Peter let the council have it, it's kind of like Stephen did, and the Bible said this, Acts 5 and 33, when they heard that, they were cut to the heart. And took counsel to slay them. Then stood there, went up in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law. Had a reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. So every time these guys get confronted with the truth, whenever the Holy Spirit brings them under conviction, what do they do? They turn into wild animals. Rabid dogs. It's like the world today. You go out and start preaching Jesus to the world and they'll turn into rabid dogs. Right before your eyes, you can see them. You can see the change in them. You can go and talk to people about movies, TV shows, uh, cars, whatever it is, ball games, racing, uh, wrestling. You can talk to, to people about that stuff all day long. They don't care. But if you mention Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, you start seeing the wild animal come out in them. Don't you come in here talking about stuff like that. This ain't a place to come preaching. What are you preaching to us? They turn into rabid animals because of the conviction they're under. And so what? instead of receiving Christ, instead of submitting to that uh, conviction, they reject it. So these guys can't handle the truth. What's that movie? You can't handle the truth. But when the truth hits them, it cuts them to the heart. And their first reaction is to strike out and kill, just like an animal does. You try to harm an animal, the first thing they want to do is bite you, claw you, kill you take your throat out. And that's what they want to do, they want to kill him. Now, the first time Gamaliel stopped them from killing Peter and John, but nobody's going to stop them now. Gamaliel must not have been there. He must have been off on vacation or something. It says they gnashed on him with their teeth. That little phrase is used numerous times in the Bible, uh, even going back as far as the book of Job, the first book that was written, by the way. Job is not first in in the uh, in the Bible in that that way, but it's believed to be the very first book written, the oldest book. And so all the way back in the book of Job, in Job sixteen nine, it says, He teareth me in his wrath, who hateth me, he gnasheth upon me with his teeth. Mine enemy sharpeneth his eyes upon me. So Jesus, he himself refers to gnashing of teeth seven different times in the Gospels, when he's speaking about hell. And so you can just imagine what hell's going to be like. Rabid animals in hell. Men that's turned into nothing but beast, Wild beasts. Gnashing their teeth. Biting on people. Gnawing on them. What an awful thing. Gnashing of teeth is a description usually of wild animals ferociously attacking their enemy. So it means they're filled with violent rage. These Sanhedrin council. These godly men. These are the same men who like to stand on the street corners with their enlarged gown, or borders on their gowns and, and pray out loud for everyone to hear them. The same people. Godly man. They want people to look at them and say, oh, he's such a godly man. Do you know how they wore little scrolls right here on their heads in a little box to show how godly they were? What are they doing now? They're, they're a pack of wild animals. Ran on him. Friends, that's what, uh, that's what it's going to be like in hell. Verse fifty five. But he <laughs> But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. To think about this, this man. Every time we see him mentioned, the Bible talks about him being full of the Holy Ghost, and having power. He had favor in everybody's eyes, except these men here. And even with all of this that's going on, he still is full of the Holy Ghost. How many of us today could honestly stand here and say, if people had turned on us like a pack of wild animals, are we going to be filled with the Holy Ghost at that point? Or are we going to turn ourselves? Are we going to strike back like a wild animal to Adam? And so uh, we get to this famous line in the Bible where it says Stephen looked into heaven and saw Jesus, what? Standing on the right hand of God. And all through the ages, people said, why is Jesus standing? I thought he always sat. I thought that's where his position was. Well, let's look at just for a few minutes here. In 1 Timothy 2 and 5, we see that Jesus is the mediator between God and man. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men that man, Christ Jesus. So we know Jesus is there being a mediator. But we also see in Scripture every time, usually that it's mentioned, uh, he's seated at the right hand of God and not standing. Matthew 26 and 64, Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of glory. Mark 16 and 19. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Ephesians one nineteen through 20. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. So there we see that even God himself... Set Jesus at his right hand, the hand of power. Hebrews 8 and 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in, in the heavens. Hebrews 10 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Hebrews 12 and 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who is for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So to set down means that I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm at the right hand of God. So why, when Stephen looked up, why did he see Jesus standing instead of sitting? Well, give me, let me give you just a few men's ideas. These are all different commentators or preachers. I'm going to give you um, four different one, uh, ideas. First is an old commentary that I use sometimes, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. And they say, why standing and not sitting? The posture in which the glorified Savior is elsewhere represented. Clearly to express the eager interest with which he watched from the skies, the scene in that council chamber, and the full tide of his spirit Which he, at that moment, engaged in pouring into the heart of his heroical witness, till it beamed in radiance from his very countenance. I mean, that's that sounds lovely. Um, You know, Jesus stand up and pouring his spirit out on Stephen, and uh, watching the scene. Robert Hawker, his poor man's commentary, he says, And I beg him not to overlook the Lord's posture of standing, as if in readiness, both to receive Stephen to his arms and to execute judgment upon his enemies. And I request the reader, the rather, to notice his, the posture of the Lord Jesus because, as far as I recollect, after the ascension of Jesus, he is always spoken of as sitting, to receive his people and to behold the destruction of his foes. So, Robert Hawker, you know, he's saying that uh, he's standing there ready to receive Stephen when he, when he comes up. John Gill, he's an old preacher. He says, uh, And Jesus, standing on the right hand of God, of that glory which was a symbol of him, Jesus, being risen from the dead and ascended on high, was set at the right hand of God in human nature, and so was visible to the corporal eye of Stephen whose visual faculty was so extraordinarily enlarged and assisted as to reach the body of Christ in the third heavens, where he was seen by him standing to denote his readiness to assist him and his indignation at his enemies. That sounds sounds logical. Uh, He's standing there ready to help Stephen and uh, take uh, vengeance out on the enemies. And in John Piper, I don't know if you care much about him. Um, Sometimes he has some good things, sometimes it's not. He says this. Not only did the Holy Spirit turn the hour of death into a revelation of the glory of God and of Jesus, he also showed Stephen that the reason Jesus was standing and not sitting, as it says in verse 55, was to welcome his servant home. So death serves the dying saint not only as a window to see glory, but also as a doorway to enter glory. Not only a window to see Jesus, but also a doorway to join him. And so those those are some, you know, some wonderful things. uh, Four different ideas about why Jesus was standing and not sitting. Uh, The truth is we could guess and wonder until we reach heaven. The fact is the Bible does not come out and say this is the reason Jesus was standing. It just says that Jesus was standing. He saw Stephen, or Stephen saw him standing on the the right hand of God there. But we always have curious minds. We want to find out things. And so let me tell you why I believe Jesus is standing and not sitting when Stephen sees him. First of all, Stephen said he saw the Son of Man. Now, that's the most common title for Jesus. Jesus used that title for himself more than any other title because he identifies with man. He's the Son of Man. If I'm not mistaken, he calls him that, himself that 82 times in the, in the Gospels. Over in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, and Daniel's dreams and visions, we read this, Daniel 7 and 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. And so we understand from Daniel's vision of being, it's about the future. The times when uh, the Son of Man is referring to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We see that he was given dominion over all the kingdom, people, nations, and languages. God has given Jesus the power to rule and reign over men and the power to judge man. We know that. The Bible tells us he gave He gives judgment unto the Son. That's in John 5 and 22. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son. In Isaiah, Isaiah 26 and 21, For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Psalms, this is the last one, Psalm 109, 30-31. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth, yea, I will praise him among the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul. So, based on my understanding of Scripture and the role of Jesus, I see two things here. First of all, Jesus is standing in judgment of Stephen's accusers. And Jesus is also standing to welcome Stephen into his heavenly home. He could have very well have remained seated and done both those things. It's the same thing. But if if one of your children, think about it, if one of your children was being done wrong and you were up here watching it, you think you're going to be able to sit there and watch it? Nope, you're going to jump up. You're not going to be able to sit down. You're going to stand up. And so I think the Lord stands in judgment of his accusers and to welcome him into his heavenly home. Verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. So the wild pack of animals began descending upon their prey. They're out for blood. They refused to listen to him anymore so much so that they, they've stopped their ears up. I can see them now, those bunch of crazy wild animals gnashing at their teeth, got their fingers and their ears and they're running on him and everything. Um... Look at what they did. Verse 58. And cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. So Stephen was stoned according to the laws of blasphemy. Leviticus twenty four sixteen and he that blasphemeth in the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well as the stranger, as he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. So that's what they're, they're falling back on, the law of Moses, saying that uh, he blasphemed, we killed him. And so then we're introduced to Saul of Tarsus, later mostly known as the Apostle Paul. Notice they took off their outer garments and they cast them down at his feet. Uh, the reason they took off their outer garments is so that they could run faster. I mean, these guys wore this outer robe around a, a tunic, and so it would bind up their feet. That's why they usually hiked them up when they were going to be running or walking fast. But they, they want to run on him so hard they've then ripped off their outer cloak. and They're like Braun Strowman. He, he always tears his clothes off every time he gets in the ring. Uh, But that's what they've done. They've they've torn their cloaks off, and they've threw them down at this young man's feet. And uh, it calls him young, but it's believed that Saul was probably around 30, could even been 40 years old at that time. He's been through uh, seminary already, and so rabbi school, and that took a long time. Uh, Verse 59, And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And just like that, the life of this beautiful man, Stephen. This man filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes out this way. He'll forever go down in history as being the first Christian martyr. And what a testimony to have. His prayer that their sins not be laid to their charge is reminiscent of what the Lord did on the cross when he shed his blood for our sins. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen asked for forgiveness for his enemies. Lord, lay not this sin to the charge. When I see that, I often think, Brother Byron, you are... You are nowhere near that. You are nowhere near being as good as Stephen. <laughs> would to God that we would all have the spirit that Stephen has. Can you imagine what a change this world would be like if Christians had the same kind of spirit that Stephen had, filled with the Holy Spirit, forgiving of his enemies, what a powerful testimony! All right, we're going to stop right there. We do have business meeting, so I'm going to pray, and uh, I'll pray over the business meeting as well. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message tonight. God, it's such a sobering message. Oh God, what truths we find in your Word, and how we find ourselves lacking. God, help us be better. Help us be better Christians, better servants, better witnesses. Help us, Lord, with it. We can't do it without you. Lord, thank you for each one that's here tonight. God, help us in our business meeting coming up. God, that uh, everything that takes place will be pleasing to you and uh, edifying of the church and and your church and the church body. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.